We uh, started a series uh, a few weeks ago on the foundations of faith. We're entitling this series the ABCs of faith, and by that we just mean the basics. I don't expect that I'm going to say things that you haven't heard before. That's really not my intent. But it's good to be reminded of the things that put us over on life. Amen? We looked uh, for the first couple of weeks at, um, uh, well, the ABCs of faith really come down to three things. One is what faith is. The second is how to get faith. And then the third thing is how to use your faith. First two weeks, we talked about what faith is, and we saw some different... Uh, there's a lot of ways you can describe faith from the Bible. There's a lot of different characteristics that different scriptures bring out. And we tried to, to gather a summary of some of those things. We certainly didn't exhaust the subject by any means. And then the last two weeks, uh, we've talked about how to get faith. And the Bible says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. So today and, and uh, next week, I want to talk about how to use your faith. So Hebrews 11.1 it says, now faith is. Please notice, now faith is. Now, there's there's a lot of things you could say uh, uh, about this, a lot of things, different ways that people preach this. But one thing that I have uh, am always amazed at is the supernatural aspect of the Word of God. We know that the Word of God is, is inspired by the Holy Ghost, and that literally this is God talking to us from the printed page. And it's not the book that's that's sacred or holy in and of itself. It's not a relic or something like that that we should treasure. But the words, the message, is what's sacred. And it's, uh, Jesus said, the words that I speak into you, their spirit and their life in John 6, 63. There's a, there's a living nature to the word of God that nothing else can compare to. And as such, one little thing that the Holy Ghost says or one little way that the Holy Ghost says it can make all the difference in the world that, that Paul may not have even recognized what he was saying when he wrote this. That we may not see the first time that we read it, but just the first three words. Now faith is. It identifies the tense. T-E-N-S-E. The time period. It identifies the time period for faith. Faith is always now. If it's not now, it's not faith. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. I think that's relevant because hope is always in the future. I've had people say, uh, and you've heard this uh, phrase all through your life, I'm sure, well, the only thing we can do now is hope and pray. Well, if you're hoping and praying, you're wasting your time. Because hope is always out there in the future. Hope has no substance. Hope is a dream. But if you don't have any way to get from point A to point B to realize that dream, it's not going to happen. And so many times people dream their lives away. But there's no substance to that dream. For example, somebody might have a dream to be a doctor, but if they don't start studying medicine, forget it. Amen? And it's like that way, it's like that with anything. You can see things that the Bible says belongs to you. You can have a hope for healing, but if you don't have a plan to get from point A to point B, from where you are now to that healing, it's not going to manifest. Well, what is that plan? What is that means? What is that manner to get from point A to point B? To get from where you are to the hope you have. The Bible says that's faith. Therefore, faith is the only way that there is that God is designed to receive from him. Without faith, you can't get anything from God, even though God might want everything that you want for yourself. If you don't find out what this faith is and how to get this faith and how to use this faith, you're going to be left without. Not because it's God's will, because he showed us how to do it. So now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Notice the last phrase, the evidence of things not seen. How can you have evidence for things that you can't see? Some of these statements don't make sense to our natural minds, do they? That's why you have to see them with something other than your natural eye. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. 
Faith is the only evidence there is for the unseen things that God has promised in his word, the hopes that you have that you are now taking steps to receive. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. If you're believing in something you can see, that's not Bible faith. Bible faith always deals in the unseen realm. Now, <clears throat> here's an area where the devil tries to trip you up because he'll say to all of us, he'll say, well, you know, it's not working because you can't see it. Well, duh. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. The fact that I can't see it is the proof that my faith is working. Yeah, well, what about it, Pastor Mike? Aren't we supposed to expect to see it someday? Yeah. And when you see it, you won't have to believe for it anymore. Then you know it. You go from believing to knowing. Knowing has to do with the, with the, the seen realm. Faith has to do with the unseen realm. Yet the Bible says here in... Um, well, let's just keep reading in chapter chapter 11. It says, For by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand. In other words, here's how faith was used by God. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. In other words, the things which are, are seen, everything that we see and know in this physical realm because of our ability to see them, see those things, was made by unseen things. So which is greater, the seen or the unseen? has to be the unseen. That's why faith is such a necessary component. Faith is the evidence of things that you can't see. Faith is the evidence of things you can't see because the unseen things will change the things you can see. So the devil tries to keep you over into the seen realm. Well, it's not working because you don't feel any different. It's not working because you can't see it working. That's why we need faith to reach beyond those things that we can see. Take hold of the realities of the unseen realm. Now, what is that unseen realm? That unseen realm is the realm of God. And folks, the Bible says that one of these days, everything about this physical world, everything about this physical realm, this natural realm that we see and know and we put so much confidence in that we touch and feel and base all of our lives on is going to melt away. The very thing that so many people put their trust in and live their lives trusting in shall vanish away. And then all that will be left is the unseen realm. Unseen to us now, but it will be seen to us then. It won't be any more real then than it is now. That's why we need faith to reach beyond the veil to take hold of the things that are in the unseen realm and to bring them into this realm of reality. Verse 6, but without faith it's impossible to please God. Notice it didn't say it's difficult. It says it's impossible. Now, you can't find any other thing in the Scripture which says it's impossible to please God without. Love is, some, is, is of utmost importance. It's the law of the new covenant. But you can't find a verse of Scripture that says without love it's impossible to please God. Good works are important. God wants us to do the works of Jesus. He wants us to reach out and help other people. But you can't find a Scripture that says without good works it's impossible to please God. Witnessing is a good thing to do. But you can't find a Scripture that says without going witnessing it's impossible to please God. All the things that the church world focuses on as important things and paramount uh, importance and, and, and critical natures and, and all this kind of stuff, here's the only thing you can find in Scripture that says it's impossible to please God without. And that's faith. That's why God demands faith of his people. Because he wants you to please him. Well, that sounds kind of tough on God's side. He just wants you to live your lives pleasing to him. Well, notice why he wants you to please him. 
Notice it says, without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. In other words, without faith you can't receive from God, and God wants you to receive. And the only thing that pleases him is you receiving what he's provided. So it's not a hard-nosed thing. It's not a, it's not a taskmaster do-it-or-else type thing. It's that God wants you to have everything that he's provided for you. He's trying to get something to you. He's not trying to take something away from you. He's not trying to demand some, some difficult manner of life from you. He's trying to get something to you. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe, number one, that he is. I believe that means not only that God exists. Certainly that would be true. You couldn't come to God if you didn't believe he existed. But I believe it means that he is everything that he says he is in his word. That's the first thing you have to believe. The second thing you have to believe to be pleasing unto God is that he, God, is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now think about that. God demands that you believe that he will reward you. Why? Because faith is the important element to receive from God. If you don't believe that it will reward you, he can't reward you. He's trying to get that reward to you. I spent a big part of my life, almost 25 years, well, maybe not that, uh, well, a long time. I don't know how long it was. Don't even try to figure it out. I spent a lot of part of my life, a big part of my life, especially my teenage years, thinking that God was trying to keep something from me, thinking that God was going to keep me away from the things that were fun in life and the things that I might want to do because he's got a different plan for me. And all the time he was trying to get to me something better than what I wanted for myself. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. Now, how do we use our faith? We talked about what faith is and how faith comes. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. How do we use our faith? Turn with me over to Acts chapter 14. We looked at this scripture during one of the other messages, earlier messages in this series. But I want to look at it uh, from a different point of view than what we did before. This is talking about Paul and his company. It says that they became aware of a plot to stone them. And so Paul and Barnabas... We're aware of it. This is Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 6. They were aware of it, and they fled unto Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and unto the region that lies round about. And there they preached the gospel. They preached the gospel in this region that included Lystra and Derbe and, and the other cities in the areas. And there, verse 8, and there sat a certain man at Lystra, the city of Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. Now, we don't know how old this guy is, but he's got to be a grown man. So we'd expect him to be at least in his 30s. And he's never walked, never taken a step in his life. Born cripple, never taken a step in his life. It would seem like an impossible situation, wouldn't it? The same crippled man heard Paul speak. Now, we know what Paul spoke. Verse 7 tells us that they preached the gospel there. It tells us in verse 6 that it included the cities of Lystra and Derby. Now they're at Lystra, so we know that he preached the gospel in Lystra. Now, folks, we said before, we, uh, we talked about this some, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. The reason that faith comes by hearing is because the word of God reveals God's will. Faith begins where the will of God is known. If you don't know God has something for you, if you don't have something to put your hope, that future goal, in front of your eyes, then you don't have anything to attain to by faith. So faith begins where the will of God is known. The gospel reveals the will of God. Now, this guy's crippled. We don't know anything else about his condition. 
We don't know anything about his life. We don't know if his marriages have been successful. We don't know if he's got kids. We don't know anything else about his life. What the Bible tells us is about the sickness or the crippling, the uh, paralytic condition that this man has endured all of his life. That's what the Bible is revealing to us by the Holy Ghost. So what the gospel is going to appeal to him or the gospel that's going to deal with his situation is concerning his condition of sickness or paralysis, right? The same heard Paul speak. He heard Paul preach the gospel. He heard the will of God revealed. He heard the will of God revealed. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, Romans ten seventeen says. He's heard the word. Well, what did that do in him? The Bible says when you hear the word of God, it produces faith. Now, one of the outstanding and, and uh, amazing things about faith to me is that when you hear the word of God, it instantly produces faith. It takes no effort on the part of the intellect of man for faith to be produced. All it takes is hearing the word of God. Now, when you look at the faithless condition of the modern-day American church, that tells you something. It tells us that the church is not hearing the word. Because when you hear the word, faith is produced. I didn't say they weren't hearing sermons. I didn't say they weren't hearing preaching. But when you hear the word of God, faith is automatically produced in the heart. The Bible says so. It's the way it works. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So either the word is not being preached or the people aren't hearing what's being said. I think it's a combination of both. I personally think that the emphasis, uh, the scales are tipped on the side of the words not being preached. Because it's a rare thing for people to, re- to reject the knowledge of God's will when it benefits them. They have to have help with that. Hence the American church. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. The same, the crippled man, heard Paul speak, who, talking about Paul, steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed. Therefore, Paul's gospel had to include healing. Paul's gospel had to be revealing, had to reveal to this crippled man the will of God concerning his healing, concerning his desire, his God's desire for this man to walk. The gospel revealed to the crippled man that God wanted him to walk. I wonder if there'd been any point in his life where he had wondered, this crippled man had wondered, why did God do this to me? I wonder if he'd had other people in his life that said, well, we can't understand the ways of God, but he must have had some purpose in this. But now, folks, remember, James told us that there's no variableness or or shadow of turning with God. That means if it's God's will for him to be healed in Acts chapter 14, it was God's will for him to be healed and to walk all of his life. God can't be on the side of sickness earlier in his life and now on the side of healing. Because that would be variableness. That would be changing on God's will. And God's will never changes. So if God wants him to be well and to walk today in Acts chapter 14, in the t- at the point in time that he heard the gospel preached, God's wanted him to walk all of his life. Now stop and think about that statement. God wanted him to be able to walk all of his life, but he hadn't walked for at least 30 years. We have to assume that manhood means 30 or more years. 
and it calls him a certain man. It doesn't say he was a young boy or a young man or anything like that. So we would assume that he's a full-grown adult. God's wanted him to walk all of his life. It's been the will of God for him to walk all of his life. Yet the will of God was not revealed. The will of God was not realized in his life until Acts chapter 14. Why? God's fault? See, you got so much of the church blaming God for stuff that's going on in their life. Why? God's fault? The Bible says that Jesus took upon him not only the payment for your sins, he died so that you could live, have eternal life, but the Bible also says that the chastisement of our peace was upon him. That word peace is the word shalom in the Hebrew. It's the, it means welfare. It means healing. It means health. It means uh, prosperity. It means blessings. It means benefits. It means God wants you to win in everything you do. So anything that you and I can look at in our lives where we didn't win, where we were coming in last rather than first, we could... Do the same thing that so much of the church world does and say, well, I don't know why God did it that way. When it was the will of God for you to win all along. So why didn't we win? God's fault or our fault? Well, remember why it's impossible to please God without faith. Because God wants you to receive everything that he has made available to you. He wants you to walk in his will. In this man's case, that means walk in health. It would also mean walk in blessings. It would also mean walk in victory. It would also mean walk in every good thing there is. Folks, God did not get you saved, leave you here on the earth so that the devil could kick you around. Uh, there was a time when, uh, I don't know why I just thought of this. Um, in our neighborhood, there was a, there were some folks that used to live in, in, uh, up the street that, uh, uh, well, the guy was, the guy was a jerk. Uh, there's, there's no other way to get around it. The guy was a jerk. And, um, my kids were young and they were out playing in the street. And, uh, uh, there was something that, uh, uh, there was something that happened. I don't remember exactly what it was. But, um, I don't know if my, my son threw a ball in their yard or whatever it was. But anyway, this guy came out and I'm standing in my living room. Just happened to be standing there watching the kids play. And uh, this guy comes out of the house, and he's ranting and raving. He's screaming and stuff at, uh, at my son, coming at him like he's going to hurt him. Uh, well, let me say, I was younger then. I came to myself in the middle of the street. And, and I was about, I was measuring steps. I'm thinking, okay, one more step and then put my foot right in the middle of his chest. <laughs> Seriously, I'm thinking, I'm measuring the steps. What am I going to do to kill this man? And I thought about that. I caught myself and, and we, we worked it out and it turned out to be no big deal. But, uh, but I've thought about my, I've thought about that before. Now don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it was a spiritual thing. I was in the flesh. No question about that. But the Bible says if we know how to be good parents to our children and, and my desire was good to protect him, then my desire to kill the other guy, you know. That wasn't so godly. You know, God would have picked a different way. But if God cares enough to put his nature in us to protect our kids, how much do you think God wants to protect you? All right, well, let's don't forget about this guy in Acts chapter 14. And there they preached the gospel. 
And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed. What does that mean? That means he knows it's the will of God for him to walk, but he's not walking. If we stop at the end of verse 8, he has faith to be healed, but he's not healed. Why? Paul knows something about the operation of faith that this guy doesn't know. Now, folks, here's what I want you to understand. You can know what faith is, and it's it's vitally important that you know what faith is. You can know how faith comes, and it's vitally important for you to know that faith comes by hearing the word. But if that's as far as you ever go, your faith's not going to work. This guy, Paul knows that this guy has to release his faith. He's got to utilize his faith. He's got to put his faith to work in order for it to bring him the results that God wills for him to have. And so Paul says with a loud voice, stand up right on your feet. And the man leaped and walked. What did Paul know? Paul knew that unless you act on your faith, it won't do you any good. He had to act on his faith. Now, one way to act on his faith is to take action, physical action, just like this guy did. Turn back with him to Mark chapter 11. Let's look at another thing that Jesus said about faith, about how to put your faith to work. Mark chapter 11 tells us the story of when Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem. It's the last week of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. They pass by a fig tree, and the fig tree is, is full of leaves. It looks like it should be fruitful, but it's not. And so Jesus sees that there's no fruit on it, and Jesus cursed the fig tree and said, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. The next morning they come walking by there, and the disciples pointed it out. Peter points it out and said, Look, Master, the fig tree which you cursed yesterday is withered away, is dried up from the roots. Now, that's a supernatural result because the fact that the Bible says it's dried up from the roots means that it's like it's been diseased from the inside. In other words, Jesus cursed it and the curse went to the root of the problem. It didn't start withering away from the leaves, uh, the outward in. It died from the inward out. And as a result, this tree looks like it's been dead for a long time. Now, we've used this example before, but I think it's, it, it uh, bears repetition. I think it's uh, worth considering. If Jesus had taken a chainsaw to the tree before, the day before, and said, I don't like unfruitful trees, so I'm going to cut this one down, it would still be, it would still have green leaves on it. It'd still be green. The fact that it's dried from the roots out, dried up from the roots, indicates the power of God as a result of what Jesus did when he cursed it. And so Peter, drawing his attention to it, said, Master, the fig tree which thou cursedest is withered away. And Jesus answering, verse 22, Jesus answering said unto them, Yes, this is because I'm the Son of God. It's proof to you that I'm the Son of God. Now, that's I know the Bible doesn't say that, and you know it doesn't say that, but that's what so much of the church world thinks. So much of the church world thinks Jesus went around doing stuff that he did because he was proving to the world that he was the Son of God. Jesus did not say that. Jesus did not answer and say, this is because of who I am. Don't try this at home. No, in fact, Jesus said, here's how this happened. Have faith in God. Now, the understood subject of that sentence is you. He didn't say, yeah, this is because I have great faith in God. He said, here's a principle that works for anybody. You have faith in God. And then he describes how this faith works. He describes what it is. He describes how it works. He said, for verily, I say unto you that whosoever. Now, whosoever means anybody, doesn't it? 
He didn't say this is exclusive for me because I'm the son of God. You guys never have realized yet that I'm the guy. That I'm the Messiah. That I am really God in the flesh. He didn't say anything like that. Well, why does the church world say that? Why does the American church preach that? Why does the American church preach? Well, it's not just the American church. It's all over the world. But America is so bad about it. Why in the world does the church preach that Jesus did this stuff because he was the son of God when Jesus said you can do the same works that I'm doing? Jesus said, Verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say. Notice the first thing he makes mention of in this description of of verse 22, having faith in God, is what you say. For whosoever shall say unto this mountain. So he's not just talking about this working on trees. He's not saying, yeah, here's the tree principle. He's saying that this tree represents any problem, any mountain, any difficulty, any obstacle. Any unfruitful circumstance in your life. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And here's the only qualifier he puts in this verse. And shall not doubt in his heart. Now we've looked enough at, at, uh, in previous uh, uh, sermons, previous messages in this series, to know that the heart he's talking about is the spirit. Peter called him, First Peter chapter 3, called him the hidden man of the heart. Well, what's he hidden from? He's hidden from the five physical senses. He's the unseen man. He's the man on the inside. He's the real you. He's the man that lives in this body. Paul called him the outward, or called him the inward man and contrasted him with the outward man. There's a real you on the inside. When this body is dead and is laid in the ground, the real you will continue to exist. He's talking about that man on the inside. That's the man that's recreated when you uh, make Jesus the Lord of your life. That's the man where God lives, in whom God lives. He doesn't live in your flesh. (laughs) That's pretty obvious, huh? He lives in your spirit. So when he says, and shall not doubt in his heart, he's talking about shall not doubt in his spirit. Now, what does it mean? We We could spend a year teaching on what does it mean to doubt in the heart. Can I define it for you just real simply? Doubting in the heart means operating according to what you see, hear, and feel from the natural realm. Not doubting in your heart means speaking and acting according to the unseen realm which is revealed by God's word. So where he says, shall say into, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, he literally means and shall not say anything to the contrary. No matter what it looks like. And shall not change what he says no matter how he feels. That's what he means about not doubting in his heart. Not letting the physical circumstances influence what you have said from your heart. If he's talking about not doubting in his heart, then he must be talking about believing or saying from the heart. Right? Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe. Well, again, if he's talking about not doubting his heart, he must be talking about believing in your heart. So believing in your heart is believing according to what the word says and not according to what you see or feel. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe. What are we supposed to believe? That those things which we sayeth shall come to pass. You're supposed to believe that your words will come to pass. Now, why in the world would we believe that? Because the Bible says they will. 
Yeah, but it doesn't feel like that's the way it works. I know. That's why you have to believe from your heart. That's why you have to believe according to the unseen realm and keep your eyes on the unseen realm rather than the seen realm. Because so many times we'll speak to our mountain and it looks like the mountain grew overnight. So many times we speak to our bodies, command sickness and disease to leave our bodies, and it looks like things get worse. And not only does it look and feel like things get worse, the doctor may even tell you that things got worse. Well, what are you going to look at? You're either going to have to look at what the Bible said and believe that to be true, or you're going to be influenced and affected by the circumstances. That's what he's talking about. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. What's he telling us? He's telling us very simply, when you speak the word of God and don't change your tune, you get what you say. Now, notice Jesus doesn't say one thing about acting. Acts chapter 14, the man had to stand and walk. He didn't confess anything. Paul didn't say, now stand up and confess you're healed. Or he didn't say, confess you're healed and let's see what happens. He said, stand upright on your feet. He's got to get the crippled man acting on the word. Jesus says that confessing is acting on the word too then. Turn with me over to to, uh, Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. I'm going to start reading in verse 6. I'm going to go through. I know we've talked about some of this stuff before, but uh, I'm going to go through this uh, pretty quickly. Romans chapter 10, verse 6, it says, But the righteousness which is of faith, righteousness comes by faith. Everything comes by faith from God. But the righteousness which is of faith speaks on this wise. In other words, here's what the righteous man says because he, because of what he believes. And then he starts off and says, Before I tell you what it does say, I'll tell you what it doesn't say. Say not in your heart. Who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead? He said, here's what the righteousness of faith talks like. Number one, it does not say, if only Jesus could come back from heaven and help me. It does not say, if only Jesus could rise again from the dead just to make sure that I was taken care of. In other words, it's saying, the righteousness which is a faith, the faith that God demands that we live by, does not look for if only I could have been alive when Jesus was here on the earth and he could have ministered to me like we read in the stories of the Bible. It's not looking for God to do something more than he's already done. Faith, faith which is of the heart, faith which works, does not say I need God to do something for me. I need him to come down from heaven. I need Jesus to make sure that this works for me. Well, if we're not looking for God to come down from heaven, if we're not looking for Jesus to return to the earth, if we're not looking for God to do something new for us, what source of power do we have? Verse 9. Or verse 8, I'm sorry. But what saith it? Here's what faith says. Faith says, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is The word of faith which we preach. In other words, he's saying this. Everything that you want to receive from God, if Jesus would come back to the earth, you can get from the word. You're not at a disadvantage because you didn't live when Jesus was here on the earth. In fact, you have an advantage because you always have the word with you. 
If you were here on the earth when Jesus was here on the earth, you'd have to get to wherever he was going on any particular day. And sometimes Jesus would go away during the night and nobody knew where he was. We'd need to put a GPS tracker on that guy to keep up with him. Because a lot of times he was trying to get off by himself. But you've got the word all the time, 24-7. And the Bible is saying, here's what faith does. Faith recognizes that the word will produce the same thing that Jesus would do for you if he was here in the flesh. Well, if that ever sinks in on and dawns on you, that'll turn your life around. Because so many times that's what the devil uses to work against us. All we've got is the word. Well, we've been confessing the word. We've been believing God, but nothing seems to be changing. But if only Jesus, if only Jesus. Folks, you need to forget that if only Jesus prays from the rest of your life. Because of Jesus, you've got the word. Now, notice where the word's supposed to be. The word of God is nigh thee. It's near unto you. Where is it near unto you? It's in your heart and in your mouth. Notice faith has to be in two places. It's got to be in your heart because faith is believing in the heart, believing according to what the word says and not according to what you can see and feel. But notice if it's just in your heart and not in your mouth, it doesn't do you any good. That puts you in the position as the crippled man in Acts chapter 14 before Paul told him to get up and walk. You can have a heart full of faith and it not do you any good. And it won't do you any good until it gets into your mouth. You can know what the word of God says. You can be aware of the will of God and it not do you any good unless you speak it. It sounds like Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost the same thing Jesus said. Whosoever shall say the word is nigh thee even in thy heart and in thy mouth. That is the word of faith which we preach. I love the fact that the gospel that Paul preached, he called, or he told us by the Holy Ghost that it's called the word of faith. Because faith is present when you hear the word preached. He tells us how it works in salvation. Verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, that means confess Jesus as your Lord, and believe. There it is in the mouth, here it is in the heart. And shall believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So what's he saying? He's saying you got to have faith in your heart to believe that God sent Jesus to the earth and raised him from the dead, caused him to die on the cross for your sins and then raised him from the dead. You've got to believe that in your heart and then say with your mouth. He said if you do that, very simple formula, if you do that, thou shalt be saved. Folks, that in some form of that, every person that's ever been saved operated according to that. If you got saved in church where people knew these scriptures and they led you according to what exactly what it says, that that's certainly one way that it would work. Another way might work if somebody just generally said these things because of what they believe. I don't think God's sitting, sitting there saying, no, you missed a word. Doesn't work for you. Your prayer was missing the one word that was necessary. But everybody that's ever been saved is operated according to this principle and had to in order to get saved. Verse 10, for with the heart man believes. Please notice this progression. With the heart man believes unto righteousness. Righteousness means right standing with God. It means everything that God's ever provided for us. That means the heart believes to receive anything and everything that you can get from God. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth. Notice both heart and mouth are connected. 
And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. It's, a, it's an interesting thought. You don't get saved until after you say Jesus is your Lord. In other words, you say Jesus is your Lord before he becomes your Lord. So really, you're calling things that be not as though they were. Because at the moment you say Jesus is your Lord, he's not yet your Lord. It's the action of speaking, of saying, of confessing that Jesus is your Lord that causes him to become your Lord. Some people take this principle and say it only works for getting saved. Well, says who? Show me any scripture where it says faith changes. Show me any scripture that says it's different faith that gets you saved than faith that gets you healed. Now, a lot of the church world will say, well, healing's been done away with. Jesus healed and his apostles healed, but once they died, all that was done away with. Show me anything that says faith's been done away with. If faith's been done away with, there is no church. If faith's been done away with, nobody can be saved. Show me anything that says faith will be done away with at any point in time. Therefore, if faith worked this way in Jesus' ministry, if faith worked this way in the apostles' ministry, then faith works the same way today. That is, believe with the heart and confess with the mouth and receive from God. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. You could put any blessing of God in there. For with the heart man believeth unto sickness, uh, uh, unto healing, excuse me. And with the mouth confession is made unto health. You could put prosperity in there. With the heart man believes unto blessings and prosperity. And with the mouth confession is made unto abundance. You put any blessing of God that there is in there. Because it's all part of what Jesus accomplished for you. And faith works the same way in every area. Now, there are some areas where you're going to have greater difficulty. You're going to have to stand in a little different and more difficult manner than others. Because some things are just directly between you and God. Other things have to do with this natural realm. Finances, for example. You'll have more trouble believing God for finances than any other area because this is the realm where the finances come from and this is the realm where Satan is God. So you're pulling supernaturally by your faith, you're pulling out of the devil's territory. That which you need. Well, he has an opportunity to create a greater resistance there. But things that you receive from God just between you and him that doesn't really have anything to do with the devil, like salvation, for example, forgiveness of sins. The devil can't stop that. Why? Because that's between you and God. It has nothing to do with the realm where he is the God of. The Bible says Satan is the God of this world. But faith works the same in every realm. Works the same in every area. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now turn with me over to one other example. Let's look over in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 gives us a combination of both saying and acting with the woman with the issue of blood. We'll start reading in verse 25. And it said, in a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years. Now we understand certain woman means a real life person, right? And a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing better but rather grew worse when she had heard of Jesus came in the press behind and touched his garment. Notice verse 27 says she heard something and did something. When she heard of Jesus. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And then she acted. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his clothes. 
For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that virtue, King James says virtue is literally the word power. Knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? That's King James English for saying, What do you mean, who touched you? Everybody's touching you. The multitude is thronging thee. Everybody's pressing up against you. What do you mean, who touched you? Everybody that can touch you is touching you. How are we supposed to find one person? What do you mean, one person touched you? Everybody's touching you. But Jesus knew one person touched him in faith. Which indicates to us that not anybody else was in faith that was touching him. Now, here's the fallacy that so much of the church world operates in. They think if I could just get to Jesus personally, physically, like they did when he was here on the earth, then I could receive my healing. I wonder if this lady is the only sick person in this crowd. If so, this is the first crowd Jesus ever had that was only one sick person in. I believe that the reason everybody is trying to touch him is because most of these people, or at least a good number of these people, are sick. And they've heard some of the same things that this other woman has heard. About Jesus' healing ministry. Why else are they going to be following him around? Why else are they going to try to touch him? Why are they going to try to reach out and grab a hold of him? They're looking to get something from him, aren't they? But Jesus recognized that one person touched him in a different way. Which shows us it's not the physical touch. It's the desire and the attitude and the expression of the spirit. The heart. That made the difference. She heard of Jesus and she began to say... If I can just touch his clothes. Now, the word, remember, Romans 10, 8, the word is nigh thee, even in thy heart and in thy mouth. That is the word of faith which we preach. She heard of Jesus and it produced faith in her heart. So what did she do? She said, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. She said, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. She said, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. But that doesn't do her any good unless she gets to where she can touch his clothes. So now she has to not only take the faith that she's exercising by saying and now act on it by going to where he is. So she reaches out and touches him and Jesus immediately, instantly feels power go out of him and into her. Now, can I ask you a question? Did Jesus really not know who this woman was or is he just testing the disciples? See, most people think Jesus being the son of God here on the earth knew everything about everything. Well, then what's he asking the question for? Why didn't he stop and say, there you are. I knew you were coming. You want me to tell you what happened here? This woman came and Jesus didn't know she was coming. Jesus didn't know anything about her faith. And that's why he asked her to tell the story. Jesus says, who touched me? And the disciples said, we don't know. Everybody's trying to. But Jesus looked round about her to see her that had done this thing. Verse 32 and verse 33. But the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, fell down before him and told him all the truth. She comes to him. He doesn't find her. She comes back to him and says, it was me. Let me tell you the story. We know how women tell stories. She included every detail, every... And an hour and a half later, Jesus says, <laughs> verse 34, and Jesus said unto her daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. 
Now you'll notice she stayed there long enough for Jairus' daughter to die. Notice verse 34, Jesus said unto her daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Notice it wasn't, he doesn't even say the power of God made you whole. He said your faith did the job. Where did he get that faith? Where did she get that kind of faith to receive her healing? When so many others in this crowd may not be getting theirs. We don't know exactly what the makeup of the crowd. I can't say with certainty that there was any other sick people there. But we know this. We know whoever was there and for whatever reason they're touching him, they're not getting anything. So it's not like there was just power that flowed out of Jesus for whoever wanted to touch him. No, it took faith on the part of the individual to receive something from him. And she did. And so Jesus credits her faith. He said, daughter, your faith has made you whole. He doesn't even say it's my power. He doesn't even say God's power. He doesn't even say glorify God because of the great works that he's done in you. All those things would be true. But he credits specifically her faith. Daughter, your faith has made you whole. Now, folks, if it took faith in Jesus' ministry for people to receive, don't you think it would be necessary for us to exercise faith today? Jesus didn't heal her because he was the son of God. She was healed because she believed. Well, if her faith made her whole, your faith can make you whole. Now, turn back with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We want to talk about the word of God. We want to talk about the work of of God in your heart. But let's put some things together. What have we seen here? We've seen that the way that you use your faith is exercised in three different examples that we used. One was speaking your faith, Mark chapter 11. The second was acting on your faith, Acts chapter 14. And the third was uh, Mark chapter 5, where it was a combination of both speaking and acting. Now, remember when we talked about what faith is, James chapter 1 says... That if you need anything, if you desire anything from God, let him ask in faith. Any person that needs anything from God just needs to ask, but you have to ask in faith. And then he puts this qualifier in. He said, nothing wavering. Now, wavering is the same thing as doubting in your heart. In other words, nothing wavering means you accept the word of God to be true. So you speak the word of God and you, you, you act on the word of God. You operate on the word of God, no matter what it looks like, no matter what it feels like, because the word of God is true. Right? So it would be a lack of wavering. In other words, it would be an action of belief in the heart and accompanied by the speaking of the word of God or the acting on the word of God. So we could say this. We could say that faith has to be acted on, spoken and acted on daily in order to operate. That would be a fair statement, wouldn't it? It can't be just a casual thing. You can't just speak something in faith today and then say something in doubt tomorrow and expect it to work. doesn't work that way. So it has to be consistent. It has to be held to. Now, James talked about some things and and the way that he said it about faith with works. Faith without works is dead on a couple of occasions. And they caused the church world a lot of problems because they put that in the context of salvation. They think it's faith plus works gets you saved. Well, that's not what James was saying at all. Weymouth's translation, instead of using the word works, uses the term corresponding actions. Faith without corresponding actions is dead. And then it uses the example in James chapter 2 about Abraham. He said Abraham was justified by his works, meaning when he laid Isaac on the altar. Well, if God told him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, it wouldn't have worked for Abraham to just say, yeah, okay, I'm willing to do that, but then not do it. In other words, he took action in his life. He lived according to what he said he believed. 
And James makes that point. He says, it's one thing to say somebody to somebody that's in need, be blessed. It's another thing entirely to give them something to help them. In other words, faith without corresponding actions is dead. Dead things don't work for you. Faith has to be lived. That's the lifestyle of faith. The just shall live by faith. That's the walk of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's the faith that God demands of his people. It's a consistent lifestyle, daily operation of faith. That's necessary. In other words, once you see the word of God is true, once you see what the word of God says, you accept it as true and you go all in. It's not just for today. We'll see what happens tomorrow. It's the realization that God's word is true. Now, think about that in Acts chapter 14. This man who had never walked again, here's a brand new message. Paul goes to a place where the word of God has never been taught, never reached before. And Paul says, Jesus died for your sins. He was crucified on the cross and God raised him from the dead. And when he raised him from the dead, he broke the power of sin, sickness and poverty. God wants you to walk. And what this man heard produced faith in his heart, in his spirit, the inner man. Now all Paul has to do is get him to act on it. So it was the man's faith that got him healed, wasn't it? We can't say that it was Paul's office as an apostle that did it. It says the man had faith to be healed because he heard Paul speak. But the man had to live out that faith. With that in mind, look with me to Mark chapter 4. Jesus speaks a parable. Beginning in verse 3, he said, Behold, there went out a sar- uh, hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground, where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some thirty and some sixty and some a hundred. Verse 9. And he said unto them, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, he's saying not everybody's going to get this. And whether or not you get this is going to be up to you. It all comes down to having ears to hear. The first word he said when he started this parable is hearken. In other words, give attention to. Hear this. Now he closes it by saying, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, verse 10, they that were about him with the twelve asked him of the parable. And he said unto them, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Please notice that phrase. He's saying the things that I'm teaching in this parable is the key to understanding everything about the kingdom of God. Now, folks, I would submit to you. Well, I don't know how to, I don't know how to quantify this. A minuscule percentage of the body of Christ understands this parable. Yet Jesus said it's the key to the whole kingdom. It's the understanding of how the kingdom of God works. It's the understanding of how everything about God works. Unto you it's given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables that seeing they may see and not perceive. And hearing they may hear and not understand. Lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven. Now this sounds like Jesus is saying we don't want everybody to get saved here. 
But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I don't want anybody to get the principle of this parable, the principle of the kingdom of God, and to use it without their heart being toward me. Because the people that would use this would use it to their own good rather than for eternal purposes. Now, folks, I made this statement, uh, maybe it was last Wednesday night, I don't remember. It's recently, though, I made this statement. If the world understood tithing, if tithing was an, uh, um, a, a rule rather than a spiritual principle, banks would give to churches. If the hundredfold return was an absolute rule that always worked under every condition and there was no spiritual conditions attached to it, who wouldn't give to churches? Give a dollar, get a hundred. Give ten dollars, get a thousand. Give a thousand, get a hundred thousand. Wouldn't take you very long, just a couple of weeks, and you'd be doing pretty well. It's not a rule. It's a spiritual principle. And there are conditions. And Jesus is saying, I don't want everybody to understand this principle because I don't want them to use it with the wrong heart. Now, who would do that? People that are without. People that are on the outside. People that really aren't following him. Let me ask you this. Why is it just the group that's with the 12 that are asking him? Where did everybody else go? And if you believe Jesus had the words of life when he was here on the earth, why would you ever go? Why would you ever leave? Why wouldn't you say, well, they're following him. Why don't I follow him too? I mean, if you really accepted who he was, if you really came to the understanding, man, this is the Messiah. I'm sticking with him. Now, some might say, yeah, but he hadn't called you to be one of his inner group. Forget that. I'm sticking with him. So Jesus is explaining a principle that is critical to understand the kingdom of God. Notice that he said in verse 13, know ye not this parable? How then will you know all parables? So there's two things about this story that are of utmost importance. Number one, it's the key to understanding the mystery of the kingdom of God. Number two, you'll not understand any other parable unless you know what this one's about. This one's everything. It's the key. And then he explains, verse 14, the sower sows the word. And these are they by the way, by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise, which were stoned on stony ground, who when they heard the word immediately receive it with gladness and have no root, literally moisture in themselves and so endure, but for a time. And afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty and some a hundred. Now, what is the key to understanding the parable? Verse 9, he explained it. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. He's already told him what the key to this whole thing is, and that is the degree to which you're willing to hear the word of God. Now, notice how many times he speaks about hearing the word of God in his explanation of the parable. Verse 15, these are those which are sown by the wayside, where the word is sown, but when they have heard, that's the first time, 
Verse 16, these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground. When they have heard. Verse 18, and these are they which are sown among the thorns, such as hear the word. Finally, verse 20, and these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it. In other words, he's saying the key is the hearing of the word, because every one of these four groups and these four groups of different types of ground represent people. Four types of people. Four categories of people. He's saying every one of these people, every one of these groups hear the word of God, but they hear in different ways. They hear with different attitudes. They hear with different uh, importance attached to what they hear. And that's why the key to this whole thing is he that has ears to hear, let him hear. So what does he do? He's explaining the way that the devil works. He's explaining the way that the world works concerning the word of God when we hear it because the word of God is the key to receiving everything there is from God. The word of God is the revelation of God's will. The word of God is that which produces faith for us to receive what God has provided for us. And it's your attention to the hearing of the word which makes the difference. God wants the same thing for all four categories of these people. But not all four categories receive the same thing. What makes the difference? God? God wants more for one than he wants for the other? No, he wants exactly the same for one as he wants for the others. The thing that makes the difference is their attention to the word. In other words, the attention they give to hearing the word of God. Now, here's where he explains. He says, when the word is sown, the first thing that happens is the devil comes to him immediately and says, Oh, you don't think this is right, do you? The man in Acts chapter 14, the man at Lystra, don't think for a minute that the devil wasn't there saying, oh, you got to be kidding. You can't really believe that. If God wanted you to walk, how do you, how come he made you crippled? You were born crippled. God was behind this somewhere or another. You know he was doing, he was doing something in this. Look at all the people that have confirmed to you throughout your life that God was behind this. The devil comes immediately to steal the word away. In other words, as soon as you hear the word, there's always, always going to be the devil sitting on your shoulder saying, no, that's not right. And here's why. It may be something as simple as, well, nobody believes that. It may be something as simple as that can't be true because of look at your situation. It may be something as simple as, well, you know that healing stuff can't be right because you know so-and-so died. And they loved God. The devil is always there to try to steal away the word with a thought, with a doubt planted in your ear. Always. Always. How many times have we been in offerings where we're taking money to receive for a special project or something like that, and the devil will say, oh, the church doesn't need that. You may get in your heart. You may hear a missionary or something like that. You may decide, you know, I'm going to give something to that. And the devil right there instantly says, you can't afford that. And so many people say, well, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that coming up. Guess I better hang on. Why? Have you ever, let me ask you a question, folks. Why is it that the devil has to push the world? Why is it that the devil has to push the things of the world? If the things of the world are so great, why don't they sell themselves? I mean, it's kind of like Obamacare. If it's so, if it's, no, 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 no. I'm not trying to be political here. I'm just telling you the truth. It could be anything. It could be any Republican, Democrat, or anything. If Obamacare is so great, why do we have to spend billions of dollars trying to sell it? 
Well, if the devil's stuff's so great, why does he have to push you toward it? Why didn't you just say, hey, see for yourself? I, there was a point in time when my, uh, and I, th- I think all teenagers deal with this. There was a point in time when uh, I was a teenager and uh, my dad was still alive at the time. And um, uh, my dad was a hard note. My dad was a jerk. It just, I'm sorry for the rest of my family that might not agree with that, but those of us that knew him, he was a jerk. Now, you know, I'm glad he's in heaven and I don't expect him to be a jerk for eternity, but... Um, <laughs> But he was just a real hard-nosed, do it my way or else or I'll smack you. And he was pretty much the biggest guy around, so he could get away with that. And uh, and so there were things that that uh, that I got to the point where, uh, where, and I know, looking back at it, I know just as much as I know my name. It was the devil saying, you don't have to do what your daddy tells you to do. And I remember standing up saying, yeah, of course, he outweighed me about 100 pounds at that point in time. And, you know. There's no way I could really stand up to him physically type thing, and he knew it. But but I remember these things where these thoughts would come to me. You don't have to do what your daddy tells you to do. And looking back at that, I've always thought, I, I I've wondered through the years, why does the devil always tell you that kind of thing, tell teenagers that kind of thing when it comes to doing things that are wrong? I never thought about doing right things, and the devil said, you don't have to do what your daddy says to do. Because he sure wasn't doing a lot of things that were right. The devil was never there when I wanted to do right. The devil was never there when I was impressed by the Holy Ghost on the inside from my spirit to do the right thing. The devil was never there trying to push me to do right by anybody. He's only there to push you to do something wrong. The devil's always there when you hear the word, folks. You need to realize this. The first voice the devil, the the first voice that Jesus heard when he came off his 40 day fast was the devil. Now, he went out into the wilderness to get along with God, to separate himself, to get ready for ministry. But the first voice he heard was the devil. You need to get used to hearing the devil and knowing how to respond to him. And if you notice that example that's given to us in Matthew chapter 4, is Jesus spoke the word back to him. So the devil's always there. When the word is sown, the devil's always there to try to steal away the word. If he can plant one thought, one doubt, first thing right out of the gate, he wants to snatch it away before it ever has a chance to be considered. Well, you know what happens with those folks. They miss out on everything that God wills for their life. The second group, verse four, verse 16, these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with a gladness. Here's a different group. They hear it, the devil says, no, that's not right. And they said, oh man, this sounds so good. I believe it. They overcome the devil's temptation to steal it away immediately. But now that they've received it, they've heard it, they're glad about it. Notice what happens with them. Verse 17, it says they have no root in themselves. Literally, they don't keep watering the word. They just hear it, but they don't keep focusing on it or giving attention to it. And so it says... They endure but for a time afterward when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, they're offended. In other words, the devil knows how to get you turned away from the word that has not yet taken root in your heart, and that is to stir up trouble. That's what affliction is. He stirs up trouble. For what purpose? Trying to get you to turn loose. He couldn't get you to turn loose when he said, oh, that can't be right. That first thought of doubt that came to you wasn't enough to make you turn away. So now he's going to try to make you turn away through trouble. 
I've had so many people say, Pastor Mike, I've never had this much trouble as when I started believing God. Yes, that's the way it works. You start believing God, you start exercising your faith, you start acting on the word. The devil's going to see how serious you are about this. Or if affliction doesn't do it with some people, he just stirs up persecution. Now, we think of persecution as people coming out against you. But really, most of the persecution that we endure is through our friends. You may hear the word of God. You may receive the word of God. You may even tell your friends, oh, I heard this. It was so good. Man, have you ever heard this preacher? Have you ever heard of this message? Have you ever heard this? And some well-meaning Christian might say, oh, you can't get involved with those folks. They've written books about what they preach. I've even heard some people say they're a cult. Folks, did you know that we're a cult? I was real surprised to find out. (laughs) But people say all kinds of things. Now, that doesn't mean they're wrong in the sense that they want bad for you. They just may be uninformed. But folks, don't think for a minute that the devil can't use well-meaning Christians and well-meaning friends to attack you. And so a lot of people take the position that, well, I I don't know. I, I certainly don't want to be ostracized by my friends because my friends are so important. They just add so much to my life. And so maybe I ought to just turn loose of this. Maybe I ought to just keep it quiet that I ever went there and just not ever go back and, and just forget about this. That's the, the persecution this is talking about. It's talking about persecution. It's talking about relationship situations that cause you to turn loose of your attention to the word of God. Now, folks, uh, let me tell you something right off the bat. A cult is all about the person and not the message. If we were here saying, follow me because I've got something nobody else has got, that would be a cult and you should run for your life. But if what we're saying is, don't believe me because I say it, check it out in the word for yourself. Then it comes down to what God said and not about somebody. And I'll stand up against anybody. I don't care. Doesn't matter to me how big name somebody is. If I've got the word of God for it, it's God's word. Doesn't have anything to do with me. So I don't care if somebody says, well, they're just a little shot. What do they know? Well, this little shot has got what God's word says. And I'm pretty sure God knows a lot. What is the affliction and persecution for? To get you distracted from the word and get you to turn loose of it. In other words, to rob you from hearing the word of God. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Next category of people. Verse 18, and these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Now, they overcome the devil speaking into their ear immediately. They don't let the devil take it away out of their hearts from the first. They avoid the affliction and the persecution. and The devil always goes through that. They avoid the trouble. They realize, okay, trouble's starting in, in my life. That's no big deal. I understand that's the way the devil works. Friends, people, other folks, they're not going to understand, okay, thats I'm not going to let that turn me away from the word either. But then they get concerned about other things, the cares of this world. What are the cares of this world? The cares of this world could be anything else that you choose to let become more important to you than the word of God. The deceitfulness of riches. Well, we all have to make money. I've seen people turn away from the word of God because they know that if I go to a church that doesn't get so specific and and fanatical 
about holding truth to the word and living the word of God and this faith stuff, they can make more business contacts. Well, good luck with that. I'm not sure how that's going to help you at the end. And the lust of other things. We think of lust as being physical or physical and sexual things, but lust just simply means desires. It means anything that becomes more important to you than the world, than the word of God. Now the cares of this world and lust of other things is the pull of the world, world upon you to distract you. Here's the devil's purpose to distract you from giving attention to the word because attention to the word is the only thing that's going to produce God's plan and purpose and will in your life. It's the only thing that's going to bring the blessings of God to you. And so the word of God, which took root, the reason it took root is because they avoided the devil trying to tell them to begin with, steal the word out of their heart, and they avoided the affliction, the persecution. So it begins to take root. See, in the second area, the stony ground, they had no root. Now the word is taking root because they avoid both the devil trying to take the word away from them instantly and then the affliction and the persecution of the stony ground. Now the word of God is beginning to take root, but then they allow other things to get in. They allow the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things. Desires, natural desires, maybe good, solid, legitimate things, but they let them take the wrong place of importance in their lives. So what does that tell you? It tells you that the devil is going to first come to you like the, the wayside to speak doubt in your ear to try to keep you from acting on the word. Then he's going to stir up trouble. Then he's going to stir up your friends. Then he's going to bring cares of this world. He's going to try to get you distracted and caring about other things in the world more than the word. He's going to try to get you focusing on money and money schemes, get rich schemes, whatever, maybe just career moves and stuff like that at the expense of the word of God. And then he's going to try to make you want other things more than you want the word. Because if he can do that, he can choke the word of God so that it doesn't produce the blessings of God in your life. What does this sound like the devil's after? It sounds to me like the devil's after keeping the word of God, the will of God, from becoming realized in your life. Now, folks, I would submit to you that 99% of the times where people fail to realize what God's word says in their lives is because of these different six different things. They turn their attention away from the word. Jesus said this is how the whole kingdom of God works. But here's how it works for your benefit. Verse 20, and these are they which are sown on good ground. What does good ground look like? Well, good ground are people that hear the word and receive it. The word receive it means to accept it near. In other words, to accept it into their heart. Luke, in uh, Luke's account of this says they hear it and keep it. In other words, they act on it. They live it. It's not a one-time thing. It becomes a lifestyle for them. These are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Now, thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold is representative. It's, it's showing an illustration of supernatural results. Because what he's talking about is one seed doesn't bring one blessing. One seed brings thirty blessings. Or one seed brings 60 blessings. Or one seed brings 100 blessings. He's talking about a multiplication factor of God's will, God's goodness, and God's blessing in your life. And that only comes by hearing the word, receiving it, meaning keeping it and living it in your life. And it all comes down to the attention with which you hear the word of God. Now notice, let's keep reading. He's still talking about the subject of faith. He said unto them, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed, and not to be set on a candlestick? For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested. 
neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. He says it again. What does he mean about the candlestick? He's saying your life will show up the attention that you give the word. Your life will manifest the attention to what you give the word of God. Now, what does that mean? That means Jesus knows that his word always works when it's lived, when it's accepted, when it's confessed, when it's acted upon. The word of God will always produce. None of this, well, I don't know why it's not working for me stuff. If that's somebody's position, then that means they're wavering. That means they're they're violating one of the principal rules of faith. Because faith acted upon, the word of God acted upon in faith always works. And that's what he's saying. He's saying it'll show up. Everything will come to light as to whether or not we live by faith. You know, we, we put a lot of our own ideas on what things are going to be like when we stand before the Lord at the end. I don't think there's a lot he's going to have to say. Because everybody's going to see. No more excuses at that point in time. No more, yeah, but my church didn't teach what I, what I needed to hear. No more this, well, but, but I, I just didn't think I had enough faith for that. No more of any of that stuff, folks. Everything will be out in the open. Everything will be clearly seen. There's no way we're going to be able to stand up and say, well, I was in a lot more faith than what it came to pass in my life. Not my fault. I was in faith all the time. Uh Uh-uh. That's what he means. He's saying everything will be manifest. Your life will show the attention you give to the word of God. That should be good news for us. That could be scary news for some. Verse 24, and he said unto them, take heed what you hear. Notice how much he keeps talking about hearing. Take heed what you hear. For with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you. And to you that hear shall more be given. For he that hath, to him shall be given. And he that hath not, from him shall be taken away even that which he has. What's he saying? He's saying the same thing the parable told us. He's saying the word of God will be choked out if you fail to give attention to the word of God. Fail to hear the word of God and live it in your life. He's saying the more attention you give, the more ears to hear that you give to the to the word of God, the more attention you place upon it, then the more will be given unto you. The more capacity to hear the word of God and understand the word of God, and reveal, have the word of God revealed to your spirit, the more the blessings of God will come. But if you give up along the way, what you once had will be taken from you. Folks, as we've said over and over again, Romans ten seventeen says, so then faith comes by hearing. Unbelief comes by hearing too. Or maybe we should say it this way. Faith goes by not hearing. If faith comes by hearing, then faith goes by not hearing. You can't ever give this up. This is a lifelong commitment that we're making to the word of God. Lifelong commitment. We're not talking about just to get you over the hump till you get your bills paid. We're not talking about just exercising your faith till you get over this about with sickness, attack of sickness. We're talking about a lifelong manner and way to live. I love verse 26. Jesus said, so is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise day, night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. So many times people say, but I don't understand that faith. There's some things about faith you never will understand. And that's not necessary for it to work. Nobody understands how you get born again. How does God take the old spirit out of you and put a new spirit in you? 
I don't know. I know the Bible says he does. Then he puts his spirit on the inside of that new spirit. How does he do that? I don't know. Guess what? I didn't have to know to get saved. I didn't have to know to receive the spirit of God on the inside of me and make Jesus my Lord. There's a lot of things about faith you may never figure out. And Jesus is saying very specifically, you don't have to understand it all for it to work. But the stuff that you do understand, the parts you do understand, and that is hear the word of God, speak the word of God, and live on the word of God, live like it's true, that will work no matter how much else you understand or fail to understand. I love that. So is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground and sleep and get up and go about his life, and, he, and it works, and he doesn't even know how it does. Skip down with me to verse 30. And he said, whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown in the earth, it is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. He's talking about size. He's saying the mustard seed is the smallest seed there is. But when it grows up, when it's sown and grows up, it becomes greater than all the herbs and shoots out great branches so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. In other words, he's saying the smallest seed of faith, the smallest planting of God's word in your life, held fast to, kept, confessed, lived according to like it, to, to it being true, will produce something bigger in your life than you can imagine. Jesus said, all things are possible to him that believes. All things are possible to him that believes. Nothing is impossible to him that believes. I don't care what your situation looks like. I don't care how big it is. You remember Numbers chapter 13 where the children of Israel are at the edge of the promised land. They send the 12 spies into the promised land. Ten of the 12 spies come back saying, oh, man, we've got trouble. There are giants in the land, man. They've got big armies. They've got better weapons than us. They've got cities with giant walls. The land's a good land. I mean, the fruit of the land is good. It's the land that flows with milk and honey. God was right about that part. He just didn't tell us about the enemies. God doesn't focus on the enemies, folks. He just shows you the end result. So 10 of the 12 spies said, oh, we can't do it. We can't do it. Caleb and Joshua, two of the 12, said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We can do it. Don't turn rebel against God. God's on our side. We can take the land. We are well able to do it. But the children of Israel believed the 10. They believed the majority report. Folks, the majority is not right most of the time. So they believed the majority report. They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Now, everybody saw the same thing. The 10 saw, the 10 of the 12 spies saw the giants. They saw the walls. They saw the giant cities. They saw all the military armaments and stuff like that. And they said, we can't do it. Two of them said, well, we see the giants. We see the walls. Yeah, they're there, but God's on our side. Look at what God did to the Egyptians when he brought us out of Egypt. Look at how he delivered up. God's on our side. He said, this land was ours. We can take it. Now, I want you to realize the giants is not what defeated the children of Israel. They were defeated by their unbelief. They were defeated by their refusal to accept God's word as true. We know that because 40 years later, after they spend that time in the wilderness, God brings them into the, the promised land through the hands of Joshua. They defeat the same giants. They defeat the same military groups. They defeat the same cities and the same walls that have the same walls around them, the walls of Jericho and so forth. They defeat everything that the, the ten spies said 40 years before we can't do. They were able to do it. It didn't look like they could do it, but they were able to do it because God's word said they could. So it wasn't the giants that defeated them. 
It's not your giants. It's not your circumstances. It's not your problems that defeat you. If people are defeated in life, it's because of the lack of attention they give to the word. Can you see that? Folks, the word of God is everything. The word of God spoken and acted on in your life can never fail if it's held on to. If it's held on to. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. How precious your word is to us, Father, because it reveals your will, your plan, your purpose. It reveals everything that you've done for us. Forgive us, Father, when we complain about what you've done in our lives. Forgive us when we complain about the problems and how big they are. Because nothing's too big for you. Nothing's too big for you. And we don't need Jesus to come back to the earth and and operate here physically. Because we can receive everything from the word of God just as if Jesus was here himself. Father, what a privilege it is to walk by faith. What a privilege to be doers of your word. What a privilege to see your word come to pass. Even though others can't see it at work. Even though others may scoff at us for holding fast to it. When everything in our life seems to be going the other direction. What a privilege. To be counted faithful. To stand upon your word. What a privilege. To be a doer of the word of God. Father we commit ourselves to you. We commit ourselves to be doers of your word for the rest of our lives. We commit ourselves to put your word first. We commit ourselves, Lord, in the precious and holy name of Jesus. To give attention to your word first and foremost. Every day from this day forward. We'll not be distracted by the lies of the enemy. By affliction or persecution. Or the cares of this world. Or the deceitfulness of riches or the desire for other things. Your word will be first for us from this day forward. No, Father, what a privilege. What a blessing to know that you are a rewarder of us because we diligently seek you by putting your word first. Thank you, Father, for your exceeding great reward. Even as you told Abraham, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Abraham's blessing is ours. Thank you, Father, for showing it up in our lives so that we can be a blessing to others and a help and an encouragement to others. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, let's all stand together. Hallelujah. Say this after me. I'm a believer. I'm not a doubter. I'm a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. I speak, act on, and live by God's word. Therefore, the blessings of God belong to me. God is rewarding me for putting his word first. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you. Come on back and be with us tonight if you can. Have a great day.